You're listening to the No Hacks Marketing Podcast. Each week, we take a deep dive into online marketing topics covering search, content, CRO, social, and performance optimization to help you level up your marketing. No hacks, no shortcuts, only long-term success. Here are your hosts, Slobodan Manich and Catherine Kambau. Welcome to episode almost 50 of No Hacks Marketing Podcast. You want to learn about the right ways to run an experimentation program? Stick around. I'm excited for this episode. It's the first one we are recording in 2022. So it's officially year two of No Hacks Marketing Podcast, but it's not only that. Another episode, another amazing guest. And my guest today is a self-described, hilariously weird optimization nerd. Shiva Manjanat, a senior experimentation strategist at Spiro and a test-to-learn optimizer. If this episode had a hashtag, it would be test-to-learn, but I'll let him talk about that later. He's also one of the most rewarding follows in the experimentation space on LinkedIn, and we'll get to that later as well. Shiva, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you on. Before we start talking about maturity and exper- experimentation programs, are you Team Chemex or Team Hario? Chemex all the way. Oh, come on, Not man. Not a question. Come on, why? We're, I we're in a war I have here. been using a Chemex for the past five years. Okay. And I, I don't want to speak for all experimentation people. I am very much a creature of habit. And I've optimized the living hell out of my setup when it comes to my coffee habits as well as other things. So there's no point in changing it. I'm a hippo when it comes to coffee. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want to hear. Yeah, I, I do pour over... Not that, not at often. I do espresso and I experiment with my espresso like a crazy yeah. person because there, there's, there's only one right way to do espresso. Like, sure. Perfect. Like that's the only way you can do it. Also, yeah. James Hoffman, I know you're not listening, but if you are, you help me a lot with my coffee, my coffee game, like <laughs> with everything. So yeah, good to hear that. But yeah, glad. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of sorry we're not on the same team. So I, as I was preparing for this episode, I was talking to your uh, colleague, Ben LeBay. You did, you did the workshop with him. We'll talk about that. And he yeah. wanted to ask about the, the memes, man. Like, why do you use memes to, or, or what is the best way to use a meme to talk about cringeworthy CRO program stories? You got, you well, I don't necessarily want to say it's cringeworthy stuff. For me, it's, there's so much seriousness going around with experimentation. Like, you have to do it a particular way. It has to be tied the right way. There's, you could read paragraphs, books about experimentation. Some of it's boring. Like, I'm not going to lie. Some of it just can be boring. And what I want to try and do is like, first of all, like, I just like to have fun. I'm not, I'm not a serious person when it comes to a lot of things like love comedy shows, love to just roast people and be roasted. So I try to think, take things a little bit less seriously, but I think it's a way to disseminate complicated concepts into easy things, but also like humor is a great way to get people talking about things, people interested in it. So a little bit selfishly, it's like, I want people to read my content in what easier way than by having a joke or talking about something that's a little bit more visually interesting. But that's a fair point. I think, but I think these, like, I create memes because I think it calls out stuff in a more interesting but painful way. It sparks, it helps create my, sparks a little bit of my creative juices a little bit, but mostly it's just a way to talk about experimentation in a way that tends to be pretty dry, pretty hmm. like uninteresting like if i were to if i were to present something like i don't know like a this is how the test did and all i showed you was a spreadsheet you'd be like all yeah. right like this is boring versus like you showed heat maps you showed session recordings you showed 
you highlighted data points, we talked about insights and you showed screenshots. That's interesting. I'm kind of using that same type of principle to talk about it because it is, and it can be interesting. Sometimes it's boring, but it's pretty much interesting. And that's the vehicle I use. I, I would definitely agree with that. And I'm going to go back three years when I took the CXL CRO, a mini degree course. And when you get to the experimentation part, that's where it gets dry. I'm not saying it's bad material, just the topic itself. Mm. You need to be creative to make it non-boring. Not not saying boring is bad, but it, it's just so. I, I get it, and I get. I guess they work. People like them. People like the memes. So I hope you keep them coming. So I think it's funny, and like it if people also like it, great. And if not, well, then you just have a bad sense of humor. Well, like you, you know how you do that. <laughs> it's an easy way. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about the, the experimentation program maturity, which is something you work on as a sure. service, if I understood correctly. Yeah. So. Yep. What is the purpose of a mature ex- experimentation program versus just, let's just have a, some kind of a strategy and stick to it? Like, what is maturity of it in an experimentation program? Yeah, so it's basically like when you run specific experiments, you're trying to come up with an outcome. You're trying to test. And we'll talk about test to learn at some point, I'm sure. But you're trying to run experiments to learn more about your audience and risk mitigate, improve conversion rate, et cetera. But without a formal process, without governance, without people and skills, there is, without even having a testing tool, like you're not going to go anywhere. So when I'm talking about experimentation maturity, I'm talking about all the systems surrounding supporting experimentation, up-leveling it. So it's, let's say, for example, you're, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, you're a one-man person trying to run experimentation. You're probably doing everything. You're analyzing the test results. You might even be coding the tests. You're looking at the data and analytics. You're project managing, maybe even UX designing, like you're doing a lot of stuff. So if you are doing that for 10 years, your program's just not going to grow right. because you're not achieving scale. You're not building processes in. It's, it's just going to be hard. So like your limitation from a program management standpoint would be you need more people or you need to build really kick-ass processes if you're just one person. But even then, you'll still ultimately start limiting yourself because you're never going to be perfect at everything. No, I agree. And at at a previous job, I was that one person, and it's I didn't not know a better. We didn't know better. You, I, I think most people go through that stage with, because 100%. in CRO and experimentation, like there's no people going to college for that. Like you come from somewhere else, and and then you just get started, and you're a beginner. And yeah, the the biggest problem it wasn't even everyone in the it, it was an agency and, and we had clients who everyone wanted like everyone had the idea we want the experimentation okay they wanted a b testing like let's be honest because that's what i read a blog wanted. article that talked about a b testing i know, we have I to know do but it. let's say that was a proxy <laughs> for experimentation in their minds l- l- let's put it that way even yeah. with the buying if 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 you're the only person involved in the process in in, in doing everything and just just presenting results every now and then yep. from my experience it's not going to work it's going to fail it's just going to die out not even fail it's going to just completely fade out and we'll then, challenge that and say it's yeah. there's a cap you're going to hit that cap very very quickly yep. and then that person is going to be entirely burned out and you're just going to be at a super small low stagnant yep. level you're just going to stay there the whole time oh man that, that, that that's exactly what happened <laughs> you'll outgrow it real quick it takes it doesn't even it probably will take months if not weeks, yep. to out, outpace yourself or not outpace, to hit a limiting principle. And that's what we're talking about maturity. It's like, so we talked about like the people thing. If you have 
unlimited people, for example, like we have different pillars with regarding experimentation. So let's say peoples and skills is one of those things, data and tools, process and methodology, and then strategy and culture. Those are kind of the core, te core mm -hmm. tenants that we have, the core pillars. Let's say you have unlimited people. It doesn't matter if you have unlimited people, if you don't have a testing tool and your processes suck. There's limiting principles to that, right? No, absolutely. But I think it's how everyone gets started unless you get sure. a job at, at a mature C experimentation sure. agency. You have to start somewhere. 100%. You did you did mention test to learn. And and in a video, in an interview you did, you said test to learn, not test to win, I believe. Mm -hmm. Like Yeah. Why? Like wh why don't you want to win on day one? So that, there's a little bit of like a a name nomenclature. There's I'm playing some word games because apparently I can't describe it using words on my own. <laughs> I'll play word games because the the phrase the methodology, however, I can't. I'm struggling with words. Um, <laughs> how I basically coin it is like in a test to learn program, you're focusing on insights. You're focusing your experiments on insight generation. You're not necessarily saying I have the best test winner with every test. This is the best version. You're looking at tests that'll generate insights for every step of the way. Because the more you generate these insights, you compound the insights, the more you will ultimately win. So it's not saying you're ignoring the, the win. It's instead of short-term fixating on like the best, the best, the best, it's let's run tests to generate insights so that once we've generated all these insights and you compound them together, <laughs> you found winning tests. And then you compound those iterations to other teams. And that's, it's, it's a name, it's a word game, but it's a fixation on insight generation through your experimentation program. I, I think that, yes, I know that makes sense. I'm going to say, I think because I'm hosting this episode, I'm pretending like I don't know what you're talking about. Like sure. I, I'm the shocked host. What, what are the insights? Like, what are you learning? What are you trying to learn? I think that that's a very important thing to, to explain. Yeah. That's a great question. I would say like, think about, think about CRO experimentation, whatever name you want to use. Think about it as a research tool, or I tend to think of it as like a hub of research. So you have like UX research, user testing, heuristic analysis, session recordings, experimentation. These are all tools in your toolkit to help support a research function or help generate research, generate insights. Experimentation should also be used to generate insights in that same way. And that's kind of how I approach it from like a from that perspective. But you're basically talking about like what are types of insights you're learning. A test to learn program prioritizes tests where win or lose, you've learned something to help hmm. with the next step. So for example, button color test. What have you learned about your audience if you if a green CTA loses over a blue CTA? Right? I had You've that learned, example here and it was don't mention it, don't mention it, don't mention it. Then you had to bring it up. I'm always going to go there because that's not to say you don't run those tests, but the right. insight generation value is not as high as things I always go to is like content gating strategy. Even like one test I'm working with a client, we're pushing a lot of people into kind of a conversion form A. We ran a test that crushed it on a different form. And... It doesn't get as much traffic, but that form is peak optimized in terms of drawing high value lead generation. Right. So now I'm like, 
why don't we just shift it instead of the traffic that's coming to maybe page A that's maybe not converting at a high clip. Why don't we test people into this different page that has different messaging, different branding. It's a slightly different form, slightly different UX. But what is the impact of taking people from form A with copy A, prop A to form B, which maybe that's a quick thing. And if we learn that, for example, this new page is so much better at converting, then that's an insight that the right. traffic going to this page is going to convert better based on the page type. So it's not saying like A versus B, it works because it's better. It's working because the people we're taking that traffic to are resonating more with something on that page compared to the other. And I like what you so, mentioned earlier when I asked you this. It's not about winning the, in, in, in this test and that in, and test alone. It's about winning across the organization because the knowledge you have, you're going to share that with everyone mm -hmm. in your organization. Like your customer support people, even though it usually comes from the customer support people, the learnings, but you, know, you can share with them, you can share with designers, marketing, yeah. like everyone. And, and it doesn't only apply to the page you're testing. It, it's yeah. just the entire experience a customer or a user has with your brand. Even social media posts yeah. can be affected by that. And well, I, let me flip it around too and say like, mm -hmm. with experimentation maturity, the more eyes you have on your experimentation program, the more insights you generate, the right. more interesting it is, the more buy-in you get from other people to then staff. It's a positive feedback loop. So you're, I, I, you're exactly. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. think that I mean that that's the only if if the entire organization is oriented towards learning constantly about how to do mm -hmm. something better, that's mm -hmm. what we're talking about here. Like that that yep. is the only right way to do it. I yep. want to ask you about running individual experiments. How do you avoid being subjective when running experiments? That's a good question. I think part of it's probably just personality. So like, hmm. I don't think a hippo could ever be part of an experimentation program. Like it will ultimately influence the way you look at tests and do things. If the only thing that you're doing is just fixating on like, how do I make this test look good? And there's a little bit of that like gamification that I talked to, I had a, I have a YouTube show coming out in a little bit, kind of talks about that same thing about like, what are the KPIs for your program? Because if it's like testing velocity, then you might be able to gain that by just running a bunch of button color tests. Hmm. Like if your raise is hinging on the fact that you ran X amount of tests, you're just gonna be like, let's throw all the button color tests, right? I'm gonna hit my KPIs and I'll be good, but you're not actually driving significant revenue or impact. So how the question was like, how do you avoid, how do you avoid being subjective? <laughs> so part of it, I think, is inherently you have to have that personality trait of just being not, I guess, being humble, being mm. open to new ideas. But I think more importantly, like we as experimentation people are so obsessed. You know, I say this, we're not data driven. We're almost data obsessed. We want to constantly learn. I was actually like thinking about this, like what is the DNA of an experimenter? And I think that's where I kind of like, I'm spinning my gears in my head. Part of it is you have to be humble, which I just talked about before. It's a kind of inherent personality trait. But one of these other ones is like this constant need and love, passion for learning, which is why test and learn is important. But you're constantly trying to learn more. And if you're constantly trying to learn, you're also okay with being wrong because you're focused more on learning rather than I made myself look bad. I mean, isn't that test to learn, not test to win again, right? 
And thank you for ruining my, my last question. Who is this career for? Because you just answered it. So I'm, <laughs> I'm scratching that one. No, but I, I was aiming more for what kind of background, but I think it's even better if, you, if you're humble and just want to learn and, and don't mind if you're wrong often. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe if you're listening to this podcast, you should check out experimentation. Uh, follow up to that previous one. How do you avoid being subjective? I think this is something you said somewhere. I, I don't have my notes on that. But once you become an optimizer, websites are forever ruined. Can you elaborate that? And don't scare people. Like, you know, <laughs> it's not nice. So, I, I know that once you start doing anything with websites, they're ruined for it. It's a sausage. It's, it's literally, okay. once you see how it's made, it's, it's gone. So when you post this, we should, I should, let's talk. I'll get, I'll send you the meme that I think may be triggering this Sounds for you. Sounds good. Yep. It's a matrix meme, uh, which it's effectively you're getting red pilled into like viewing websites forever as everything sucks. That is unfortunate, but there's times that you could turn your brain off and you're just looking at websites to try and buy stuff. But I, man, every website I use now, I am just constantly looking at this, like, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. And like, if there's a flicker, like, like, oh, they're testing this. What are they testing? Like, can I trigger it again? Like, I am like, I'm, my brain is like always on with this. I'm like, like a dog chasing its coral. It, it's it. beautiful it's and so sad at the same time. <laughs> Look, I have dev tools open when I'm browsing any website just mm -hmm. to, just to check out what they're doing in the, how they're building it. So yep. again, sometimes it, if you like, have you tried this? So sometimes what I'll try is like having some background in e-commerce. I kind of know how they do things, especially if they're testing. So if I see a coupon code, I'll inspect element to see if there's an AB test in the coupon code for like a higher value might be in the store. Oh, never done that, but <laughs> e-commerce sites hate me. Apparently, they're, they're, I'm gonna get like sued or something. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just, just three incognito tabs. Try the same site three times. You might get lucky. Yep. Yep. But that's that, the way to that, do it. That, that, <laughs> it. That's is. why I never buy anything. I always go through guest checkout, and then I wait for that retargeting abandoned cart email uh, for that extra ten percent. I thought I had a discussion about this. The the coupon should it. Be there always just for loyal customers. Just not, not on the first buy with John Ivanko. And you kind of had a, the, we agreed that why, why limit it? Like, and, and he had some data. We haven't released this episode yet. If the code is always there, I think like 20% of people actually used it. <laughs> so why not just make people happy and give them that? And yeah, there, there's an online clothing retailer here in Sweden where I am, uh, and they have it in the bottom left corner all the time. It's 10% off. It's small yellow background. Like you barely see the text, but it's there. Yeah. And that's where I buy. <laughs> Not because I'm cheap, but because they're nice. Good selection and good terms yeah. as well. <laughs> but yeah. I always wonder with those companies, like if you always have a coupon code, like, or if you always are offering a discount, are you really always offering a discount? No. You're offering a discount to people who bother entering the code. I guess. <laughs> right. I guess yeah. if it's only 20-30% of people who do that, who cares? I, I, don't, I, right. don't, I don't think that it's not a test to learn. Let's put it that way. I'd, be open. I'd probably even be more frustrated if like after I purchased, I went to the site again and I saw like, well, crap, I could have used the coupon code last yeah. time I bought this. I'd yeah. be like even more frustrated than like happy Definitely. to use the code now. Definitely agree. No, no, definitely, definitely agree with that. So about research and experimentation, like they, they, you can't do one without the other. How do you combine those two? What is the actual process? What is the yeah. in, in a mature program, of course? Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. I, I, some of my best friends have been 
and continue to be people on UX teams because experimentation is just so uniquely tied to UX design, research. There is, if you don't have a good relationship with them, you are stifling the growth of your own program. You're stifling the growth of their program. And that's what we see so many times with mature, like trying to audit the maturity of these programs. There's silos. It's the UX team is literally, they don't even know that they're running tests. And then like the right. experimentation teams, like, yeah, we're designing this on our own reason. They're breaking all the brand guidelines. They're doing kind of whatever they want and everyone, but like it's happened. So there has to be not only like this one way, two way communication style, but it's connective tissue. You guys have to be so deeply intertwined and connected from a process perspective. It depends on the company to company basis as to like, what is the best way to do it? There's different boards, there's different structures, there's different resourcing, but that close relationship with UX is so important. Buy them lunch, go talk to them. Even if you don't have a sponsor that's two or three levels above you, just create that relationship. Almost like trailblaze that on your own, especially like that's something I did when I first like in early in my career building experimentation programs. If no one's breaking those silos, go try and do it on your own. They're just people. Sometimes they're weird. Hey. They're people. UX people, I love you. Now you guys are going to hate me and I'm never going to work with you guys ever again. This is, the, the podcast is not big in UX. You're good. <laughs> you're good. You're good. <laughs> but for real, like you UX people are so awesome. You have to create this relationship because one of the things I think oftentimes happen, happens with these UX folks is sometimes they'll have preconceived notions about experimentation that like you are literally going to call the baby that they designed ugly with quantitative evidence. Your baby is so ugly, it's going to drop conversion rate by 7%, right? Like, that's not literally what you're saying, but it's entirely plausible that someone would feel that. I, I'm, right? making, I'm making a meme out of what you just said. <laughs> but that's entire, like, that is an entirely is. reasonable take or logical. Maybe not reasonable, but it's logical. Versus you as an experimentation person, you're there to support them. You're there to put lipstick on the baby, well, maybe not lipstick on the baby, but you're there to like beautify the baby, put it in some nice clean Jordans and make it look as good as possible so that you have this quantitative evidence. Not only that, but <laughs> you're there to make sure the next baby is prettier. Exactly. Well, I don't, I don't know if there's biological reasons why that maybe can't happen, but you can't be testing having children per se. <laughs> But, no, but, but I, totally. I, I think it makes sense. Uh, but uh, how does it work if, if you're doing experimentation as an external company or external consultant? Like it, it's not That's that easy, question. right? Yeah. Yep. I mean, that was one of the things that I was like, as I was joining Spiro as an agency versus being internal. That's one of those things that it's less, it, it's more on process. So you have to make sure you're establishing these processes for regular check-in with the UX teams. If maybe... Maybe it's a smaller company that they're using, maybe an experimentation agency, and they're using a design agency. Just build that relationship with that agency, can collaborate with them. But experimentation is here to help you look good. I'm here to give you numbers to say the designs you created lifted conversion rate or increased revenue or whatever metrics did by X percent. You improved by X percent. So you have these numbers and you take these numbers to give to your boss during your evaluation, your yearly evaluation, and you could quantitatively prove your value to the business so you could get a raise. Like that's, we're here to help you with that. We're not here to make right. your baby look ugly. We're here to take 
what you're building and make it better. But consequently, we need UX's help to get better. And it's it's a it's a cyclical, yeah, it's circle. It's cyclical where UX helps research and then I'm sorry, experimentation helps UX and research, and research then helps UX. And it just keeps on going over and over and over again. That wheel just keeps on turning. No, absolutely. Look, if it's all siloed, it's just not going to work. It's just, but also you give them work, you give them stuff to do. If it's Mm -hmm. constant, if it's iterations after iterations, I I just think everyone, including the the, the bottom line, everyone wins when when everyone's joining forces. Now, when you have a mature program, you're, you're less likely to fail as a program, as an experimentation program. What are some of the most common reasons you've seen over the years? In this industry, yes, yes. Yeah, I'll say like a lot of times, like you mentioned, it's just a siloing effect. Mm. It's it's people who they'll have like a product silo and then they'll have a dev silo and like they're not talking to each other. And then experimentation, like screaming for help, no one's giving it to them. So like definitely seen that from an insider's perspective, like being internal on a team and working through the agency work. So break those silos. I think that's critically important. One of the things I've been talking a lot in my personal show is just like experimentation is just like so not well understood with so many different things that it's like, for example, one of the companies I'm talking with, they don't have a dedicated experimentation team, but they have some people that loosely kind of understand experimentation. But like it's one PM's role is 20% experimentation, 40% project management, like Jira, Asana, whatever. And mm. then like 40% people like there, it is one of many jobs that they have to do. Combined with the fact that they don't really understand how to drive and run experiments and run them in the best way possible. So like they're left to reading these blog articles where they talk about button color tests and that's all they're doing. So there, right. there's, I think I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. It's like, there has to be a little bit of like an unlearning of some of the really bad habits about experimentation from people who have been snake oil salesmen for for years about it. So there's a little bit of that I'm learning, but also it's it's a little bit of staffing and a little bit of like prioritization because the understanding of it, like we even talked about this like know, 20 minutes ago, like you hire an experimentation person and they're like, all right, we hired an experimentation person. We're going to run like 20,000 experiments a year. We're going to be booking.com. It's like, you have one person. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you have one person and you're, not, and you're all siloed. But, <laughs> and but you don't you, have a testing tool. <laughs> I, I know, but the, the, it kind of goes both ways, the problem, when there is a problem. Yes, experimentation wants resources. They want to work with UX, with even the dev team. But the UX and the dev team, they have their tasks that you know, sure. they're barely managing sure. To, sure. to get out in time. And then sure. there's this experimentation snake oil salesman, like you said, of course not, but maybe yeah. they see it that way. That wants me to do the extra 20% that maybe is not even going to go live. So I think, yes, the lunches and then getting, getting to know each other, people from different teams, but also it should go one or a few steps up above that level. And, and I don't know, maybe not a PM, but someone higher up should definitely be working to make sure that that different teams are actually working together. Well, I think one of those limitations is just like these, it's just resourcing. If you Mm. don't have, if if you are 1 p.m. where 20% of your job is experimentation, then that's it. Right. Like you're you're not going to be able to scale. So it's staffing properly, getting dedicated people to run it. Even if it's just one person, that's fine. That's a good starting point. Because just like test to learn, 
you can compound the wins. You can start building a business case as you start hitting wins to then continue to staff it. You can even self-fund yourself with experimentation with your test wins. So right. you can ultimately grow into that role and it's fine if you start somewhere. But to your point, sometimes it could be a layers above you that just because you just because you have an experimentation tool, it doesn't mean you're doing experimentation. Oh no, yeah. Right? It's a It's a binary thing, but just because you have it, doesn't mean you're doing it well because you could be running crappy tests. You could, you could be running a test. You could be running a test where you're delivering no code and interpreting the results entirely wrong because what you think you're testing isn't actually what's happening because you don't have a process for QA. Right. And you're like, oh, there's no impact when you just you ran an AA test and you actually literally did nothing on the website. So yeah, I read about I read about an AA test you did just to prove that you shouldn't stop a test after two days. I I don't know when that came out. But I I just I was just reading it before we hit the record. So you took away my last question: Who this career is for? If you're humble, you want to do experimentation. But we have friendly fire. So we asked some of your LinkedIn connections to send us a question for you that has okay. to do with the topic of today's episode. So first up, we have. Armdeep Athwal from UK. His question is, when do you think an organization is mature enough to require or need to start investing in building their own tools? Oh, that's a good one. That's a really good one. <laughs> one of the things, I, I don't think this is a cop-out answer, but let me try and add some context before I go into it. I think you have to consider how everything else is going around the maturity before you specifically talk about the tool. So let's say, like we talked about before, if you have 15 people dedicated to experimentation, but you don't have a testing tool, there's a very quick limiting principle. Yeah. You can only do so much. So how I tend to approach experimentation maturity is rise all boats as much as you can kind of level. And it's okay if a couple maybe take a little bit more, but it should never be like, let's just hire 15 people and boom, let's go without a testing tool, without a plan, without processes. It should be raise all boats, make sure everything's kind of floating up the right direction. Assuming that's the case, I'd say when you're, the way that we kind of think about it is within the 80% tier, the name escapes me in terms of what the level is. I, I don't, mm -hmm. I should have it memorized because I helped build the thing, but I totally don't remember the name. But basically like the fourth tier is where you're at to start building your own internal tool because you've done so many other things surrounding experimentation that financially, it just makes sense for the tool to be on your own, built in-house because it'll integrate and just work so much well with the other things you have versus simply just buying a tool from someone else. But I don't think, it, I don't think you always have to go the route of a custom tool versus not. Right. That shouldn't be the, like, that doesn't necessarily automatically take you into a top tier versus not. Because again, it depends on how you're using it. A, a free tool can be pretty powerful too. As long as you have everything else surrounding it being really good, you can still run into limitations with a free tool. But like, you can solve a really mature program on a free tool as right. long as everything else is so the, It's not a cop-out. It's basically like you'll know like when it hurts, when the tool is the, what's hurting your program. You'll probably You'll know see a very point. clear limitation of like when right. your boats are rising. All the other boats are up top, and then that one yep. data and tools is just like you keep on running into data issues. The data is not working for you. It's not as robust. It's not linked in with all your backend data, whatever that may be. Like that's when you run into that as a limitation. Then that's when I think right. it's potentially time to maybe not even a custom tool, just 
tooling should be important for any program to invest maybe a, in. Maybe a different tool. It doesn't even have to be custom. So next two questions are sort of about, I wouldn't say personal, but they're about you. First up okay. is Daniela Marcus. If not mm -hmm. CRO, which field would you spend your time in and why? Yeah. Uh, so I'm a big hockey nerd. I can tell. Uncle is from your Sweden, right? I think so. I'm not Swedish. Yeah. I, I just live here. <laughs> no, he's a Swedish king in New York City. That's why no, I, I said know. that. I know. Anyway. Okay. So I love hockey. I geek out on data and insights. So I think it would be Rangers if you're hiring, but it would be working for probably a professional hockey, preferably hockey Got team, it. like a professional team that, so we're talking about like maturity, right? I don't think sports analytics is mature and there's some limitations because of tools. So like there's a putting a chip in like the puck, how fast is your slap shot? Like right. we don't have that tracking, putting like chips in skates and stuff like that to get the tracking, how fast you go. There's, I don't know, like a wrist heart monitor for like skaters. So we know what their heartbeats are like. There is a data and tools. If we're being really geeky on experimentation maturity, there's that limitation of just general data capture, but that technology is starting to catch up. Hockey is kind of like an old boys club of like, I feel therefore it's, it's not old boys. It's a hip right. club of coaches that kind of just do things based on their gut feel a lot oh, yes. of the time. It's getting better. There is some video analytics people are starting to do, it, but it's still pretty nascent. Okay. So I think there is that ripe opportunity for starting the process of shifting the mindset towards more analytical focused things. Like baseball is probably more mature yeah. in terms of like data and collection than like hockey, basketball, I think, stuff like that. I'm not super into like... I, I'm, I'm like big that. on basketball analytics and, and data visualization. Like that was my love before i moved to to optimization of websites basketball is more mature when it comes to analytics for sure like the buzzword for the last ever since steph curry started shooting trees has been analytics because that's yeah. what people equate that like that, that's analytics they're still posting job looking for people you know for jobs professional basketball teams on subreddits of those teams like that's how mature it is so i'm just saying if you want to yeah it's wide open, my man. You should, yep. you should go for it. Well, there Especially has to be hockey. a need to want to hire. So like we talk about yep. with experimentation, someone has to read a crappy blog article that talks That's about true. conversion rate prints money for them to even be a conversation around it. I don't even, it's my personal experience with what I see in hockey. Those conversations aren't even being had because yep. the hippo is kind of being dominated. So like it's a really long story. Any excuse to plug hockey, I will always oh. take it. Please, please go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's like, it is so nascent that that's like, that's a field that is so math. If to literally optimize player deployments and look at those KPIs, you're not necessarily going to be A-B testing, but like, man, that I would love to, if not do it, just see the data and just totally geek out on it. Yeah, it's weird today. Like for, for basketball, you, there's tons of all kinds of data you want. Like even on NBA.com, like they have shooting percentages when there's a, a hand in your face and stuff like that. It, it's it's wild. I, on that note, how much of that data is subjective versus objective? Uh, they they introduce some kind of a special automatic tracking stuff. Okay. I, I don't okay. know how, but it, but it's not people putting X's like he had a hand. No, there's actual tracking. That's that's where I was curious about because hockey is always like that. And then like, yeah. I'm not going to lie. 
I don't know what the hell a catch in football is. And I don't think even refs know what that is, right? Like it's, there's so much subjectivity in a lot of these sports. That's why they have on ice referees and they're trying to literally automate like things like offsides. Well, let's just put a puck in the, in the player's yeah, that's skates easy. That's or a easy. chip, yep. put a chip in their plate and like put a chip in there and like, boom, you, you have a very clear line of like that. Like so certain things in basketball, like what is defined as like a, a hand in the face. So like, Sometimes it's just going to be subjective. Uh, it is. Absolutely is. But, you know, starting somewhere, I, I think that's where sports are at this point. Unless sure. they put a chip in, in, in the hand somehow. <laughs> I'm sure they we're will. We're not there so. yet, but I'm sure we're close. It, it's going to happen. Like, it's going <laughs> to happen. So the last question is from Ben LeBay. Again, your role is a bridge between running programs and actively shaping the program itself. So he's curious to know where you find joy in this work, considering the triangles, and what do you expect your focus to be more in the future? <laughs> That's a very you know, it's funny, actually. oddly specific question. It's funny because I just came like from lunch with him to talk about work stuff. So that was pretty... <laughs> Sorry. <about that. laughs> no, he sent this a few days ago. What was it like? What, is the, what do I find rewarding? Yeah, well, where do you expect to focus more? Out of those two, uh, running programs and shaping programs. I love both. Okay. And I don't, I don't know. Like, I think that's an okay answer to say, I don't know. Yeah. Because I love doing both. I love doing both. I love being in the weeds as a strategist, driving the experimentation program, seeing the results, shaping the future tests, looking at the research. I love that stuff. But I also think there is a big need for people to get better at experimentation, to generate better insights, to build. And, and like I said, there's this, there has to be this like unlearning of really right. bad experimentation habits that I need to happen. So I think it's, I wanna balance both because I think I find, I find it more personally rewarding to run the program internally, like as you know, a strategist, but that other work is more like, how can I help CRO do better? How can I help hmm. experimentation do better? And that's where I find, that's where I like, I like both. I like the mix of both. And I no, think that, it's that, an interesting... That's what he said. Your role is a bridge between those two and no harm in being that bridge, right? Yeah. That was good, man. Uh, I enjoyed this. This was, this was, like I said to you before we started, Julian episode was like the bomb. I guess they, I don't, they feed you guys something. It's, it's something about the company you work for, I guess. I it's really the enjoyed the conversation. It's, the, it's I know, the culture. I know. I know. I'm not, not shocked by that. Yes. I really enjoyed the episode. I really enjoyed talking to you about, well, not just about experimentation. I'm kind of disappointed about the Chemex thing. Hey, it happens. Here you go. I guess this it's isn't just... going to get published anymore, right? <laughs> nah, it, it, it's getting out. It's getting you out. Weeded, you sure. successfully weeded me out of the pipeline. Oh, like, we don't deal with them. I know we have we haven't deleted an episode since since the first time we tried to record and it sounded like two robots, me and my co-host. And you know, <laughs> it was a year ago, more than a year ago. But that that that's done. Thank you for being on the podcast. It, it was a pleasure to talk to you. It was a pleasure to meet you this way. It will be a pleasure to continue following your memes. And I'm gonna make that meme that I said I will, and I'll post that. <laughs> And uh, to everyone listening, please consider leaving a review, rate the podcast, and I will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to No Hacks Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you can leave a rating on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Visit nohacksmarketing.com to subscribe.